Tim, 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 Tim. Don't do it. Tim. Oh, no. It worked. Here you are. (laughs) Good to see you, Tim. Hey. I have appeared. Good to feel you there, everyone listening. Sorry we can't see you the same. Maybe if I knew all your names, I'd summon you as well and we'd see you. (laughs) Anyways, all the same, welcome to Dismembering Horror, specifically episode 160 of Dismembering Horror. It is We Are, You Are, We Are All Together, the podcast shoe where myself, Ryan McDuffie, and myself, Tim Aslan. Indeed. We watch a horror film, the spirit of friends getting together to watch a horror film. And in that same spirit, of friends getting together, we talk about it. We dismember it. And dismembering means, well, we talk about what worked for us, what did not work for us, and anything else may not fit into those exact categories that we found interesting or noteworthy. We love it when you submit a film. We got a big list of films that we just want to, you know, see for the first time or revisit that we pull from a hat. Or sometimes our skull bike bell goes off and we go see a new release film, which is the case of today's episode slapping a 2021 year next to the film in question. Indeed, we went and saw Candyman. Isn't that right, Tim? Boy, is it. It's so right. (laughs) Cool. Uh, Anything else to say on what we're doing here, Tim? Good context to have. Um, I mean, I would say that this film encapsulates for me pretty precisely like the goal of the podcast in that it's an example of um, achieving a film that achieves basically for me, all of the things that I am looking for in a horror film. Um, I'm not saying it's a perfect film, but it's, it's, it's pretty well doing or satisfying the desire that I have when I go into a horror film in totality. So I'm I'm just like, oh hey, we uh, somebody made a new horror film that did that, and we've had those before. Midsummer does it, um, but like, it's nice and refreshing to know that there's you know more horror, new horror that does that. You don't have to just go back to old things. Great, and you're kind of putting that. You're kind of putting that under the context of for our show here. We're always, of course, hoping to uncover the gold, whether it's new or old, just something we haven't seen. That's kind of the spirit of the show is we feel like we're on the hunt. We're on the dig. We're on the excavation, so to speak. Yep. Cool. Well, 
I feel like we could jump into our trailer unless there's anything else. No. Great. Yeah, we like to, uh, you know, watch, at least play the partial trailer for you of whatever we watched. Sort of set the mood here. So directed by Mia DaCosta with a screenplay by Jordan Peele, Wynne Rosenfeld, Mia DaCosta. Based on Candyman, the film by Bernard Rose, which was then based on The Forbidden by Clive Barker. Here we go. None other. From 2021, sequel to the film of the same name from, when was it? 90? 92, I think. Two, yeah. Cool. Candyman. Here we go. This is where it all began. The story of Candyman. Local character, he'd walk around handing out candy to the neighborhood kids. One day, a couple of kids get razor blades in their candy. Police come around. That's when I saw the true face of fear. Get on your knees. Hands, hands, hands. They beat him, tortured him, killed him right there on the spot. A couple weeks later, more razor blades and more candy. He'd been innocent. So he's real. Candyman ain't a he. Candyman's the whole damn hive. If you're out here looking for Candyman, you ask me, stay away. I feel really connected to this story. God. Right here in this neighborhood, the legend started. Uh huh. And the legend is. If we say his name five times while looking in the mirror, we could summon him. Summon the Candyman. Hell no. <laughs> cool. I'm glad, as always, I kind of avoid watching trailers for movies I want to see, but uh, that was a really good trailer. You know, it was cool. Yeah, I had not watched any trailers for this, so I was pretty well going in blind. What I did do is watch the original movie. Perfect. Two days ago, just to make sure I, I I didn't, you know, I didn't know whether they were connected or if, if it was a reboot or or a continuation or whatever. But I had read somewhere within the last couple of years that Tony Todd was going to be involved. And I was like, OK, well, I don't know how they're going to do that, but I might as well watch the first one just as a refresher. And so I'm extremely glad I did that yeah. because I would have it, it, it. I remember when I saw the first Candyman, it was 1998. Uh, it was 1998. I was a freshman in college and I saw it at my in my friend's basement. You know, like we had gone off campus and like had a weekend in New England, wherever they lived. And I remember watching it and feeling like I didn't get it. You know? And never watched it again. That was the only time I'd ever seen it. So, like, going in, getting it, like, you know, a refresher on it. And, I mean, really, in a way, watching it for the first time, to be honest. Like, as an adult. um, I was actually quite thrilled with the original so i was got doubly excited to see the this you know new installment so that's all to say um i'm gonna rate it 
<laughs> okay. Just so you know. <laughs> I'm going to go right into rate it. It's a buy. I think this is one of the, the best horror films I've seen in a long time. Like, it's right up there with Hereditary, Us, Get Out, um, Midsummer, um, uh, The Lighthouse, you know, of modern horror. Like, this is what I want. Awesome. Awesome. I kind of like in that spirit of when we've reviewed those films and like I'm always cautious because I'm still digesting it and I want to give it a rent, but then I always end up being a buy. That's exactly where I'm at now. So I'm just going to go ahead and give it a buy to save myself later on, assuming <laughs> I'm going to go on the same trajectory. I like, I'm yeah. still kind of like figuring it out for myself. Like there's aspects I clearly, clearly loved and then nothing I didn't like, like, but just things I'm kind of just still sorting out how I feel. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I just always need to see stuff a second time, especially if it's something that it's going to grow to really love. But uh, yeah, I mean, no. this movie isn't, it's incredibly complex. Yeah. I mean, thematically complex on so many levels that I almost am like, I, there's a part of me even like just thinking about before we recorded or started recording today, I was like, I'm not even sure that I'm equipped to like sit down and talk about it at length because it's it's so so complex in a realm that really like I'm not personally connected to so so it becomes it I worry about becoming sort of too academic from the outside perspective when talking about things like race um and so I mean, I'll do my best, <laughs> right? But I don't, I, I in no way presume to be any sort of expert or presume to have context for that experience. Right. Like, right. Because I don't. We have each other for this episode, but I don't know if that's saying a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> exactly. Would have been good. Two to have, white dudes. Yeah. Could have been good to have a guest. So, on. but what I realized when I was watching it is that I guess in spite of that lack of connection to that experience of being black in, in the U S in particular, um, at least getting, uh, introduced or expanded on the realities of what black people in our country have gone through just hits me so, so, so strongly and makes me really sad just to be like, wow, like they in a large way and systemically and intergenerationally have just been fucked with for, you know, like an, an, an inadequately, you know, put, but that's how I just go, God damn. What, how awful. Yeah. Um, but on the, I guess the flip side, I am like moved that artists are stepping into um into a mainstream space in particular in the genre you know world of horror and combining the commentary and deeply emotional uh storytelling 
with a you know a realm of film that I love, which is horror. So I don't know. All in all, I'm like, holy shit, this movie is it's intensely deep and affecting and also really good horror. So awesome. Yeah. I saw it maybe just a bit more my experience of going into it and watching it. I maybe last saw the first one like two years ago. So it was just kind mm-hmm. of at that cusp where like it was recent enough. I didn't feel like I had to watch it again. But after, you know, getting so stoked on this new one, of course, I wish I had. Uh, and it, even I was just, you know, I've been thinking about it since I saw it maybe about five days ago. Uh I was like looking up the sequels. Just, I don't know, even though I'm sure they're terrible, like I'm just so in the mood of just wanting to like see all that there is out there. Tony Todd's in both of them. I just want to see them. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was just, excuse my, my experience, just sort of my in summary review. I'm leaning towards buy it now, or that's why I'll say it now. That's my rating. The, it, it's just the thing that always gets me first and foremost in a horror movie is the, mood and atmosphere and just the effectiveness of those those horror moments in in that context of a greater atmosphere so that's all i'll say on that for now uh we got that's sort of all we need to say up front for surrounding our rating and experience we like to give a summary to see what we even got out of this how we followed it just kind of all get on the same page here how are you feeling about doing that, Tim? Okay. What wow. is tw- Candyman? <laughs> what was? What is Candyman 2021? Okay. 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 <sighs> With, um, I, uh, oh man. It's important. Actually, it's not important. You do not have to have seen the first movie to experience this movie fully but it does it does help like it's kind of a cool um context to have but you really don't need it because they they do enough to provide the plot points of the original um in a really cool way which we'll get into later um but having said that i think you know in the original you have a um a a grad student who is doing her thesis on um basically on the projects of of um Chicago in particular one project called Cabrini Green and there is lore about this entity called Candyman the lore is if you say his name five times into a mirror and then turn out the light, he'll appear behind you. And that lore extends into all sorts of different f- sort of versions of, of who this entity is. And, you know, it takes different forms and takes sort of the place of, like, explanation for crimes and, and murders that happen in that area. And so, you know, it's a folklore thing. So that student explores that. Um, turns out it's true well, at least in her space. And uh, she goes through a trying time and ends up dying because of it. Okay, that's the first movie. You just summed up the first Candyman as she goes through a trying time. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not untrue. Okay, okay so <laughs> let's get that out of the way. That's the base, base context, right? So in this movie, here we go. In Candyman 2021, um, we're in Chicago again. And we get a slightly different context for the Candyman story. Um, as folklore tends to be, has lots of different kind of versions. And those versions typically suit, you know, the storyteller. Um, in this version, we've got early Cabrini Green, maybe in the, it looks like it's maybe the 80s, I would say. Um, early 80s, maybe even 70s. But either way, um, a young kid, there's a, you know, cops are looking for a guy who had an actual um, prosthetic hand, hook hand, not, not, a, not a one that's been jammed into his arm um, as a punishment uh, because there had been an account, and this is true, this actually happened, uh, there had been an account of somebody putting razor blades into um, some candy uh, I think over the Halloween trick or treat sort of season. And that got a lot of press in, I think it was the eighties. And um, in Chicago, they, you know, there were people who they tried to target and, and go after and, you know, assumed were the culprits. And often that was black men. And uh, this guy in particular who had been known in the area of Cabrini green um, as the candy man, because he liked to give candy out to kids had the, the prosthetic hook hand. Um, and there's also a candy factory right there, I gathered. Oh, yeah, I missed that. Is that, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. But sure. That's I cool. I think I got that from the new one either in one of the, yeah, never mind. And so anyway, so they're, you know, the cops are looking for this guy and we follow a, a young child into the exact Cabrini Green housing project from the original film which is a nice detail. So we know right away, like we're at least in the exact same place, which is, which is really cool. So what ends up happening is that kid yells because he gets scared by this guy who has effectively gone on the run because he knows the cops are looking for him, but there's nothing to suggest that he actually was the culprit of putting razor blades into the candy. It's more so just he's the patsy that the cops decided to go after because it's convenient and easy. And why wouldn't you go after, you know, a black man, um, you know, in Chicago? That's a fairly common trope um, without a whole lot of uh, evidence to support your, um, you know, uh, accusation, so to speak. So they do and they beat him to death. Um, violently when they find him and the kid I presumably feels guilty for kind of being the one who led them inadvertently but led them to the guy who's trying to hide out in the wall of Cabrini Green. Okay, so this will come back. But the actual plot, bulk plot of this Candyman is uh, that's sort of the thread that ties the first movie and, and this movie together. But so in this movie, we've got an artist, a young artist um, who's got what would you call it? Painter's block. Yeah, <laughs> I guess. Sure. That gets at it. Um, he's dating a um, art 
an up and coming art manager slash um I think that's what you would call her, right? Yeah. Um and um he's struggling to find his new sort of like artistic expression. And he he is keyed into the folklore of the Candyman and Cabrini Green and murders at Cabrini Green over the years. So he starts investigating that, which is fun for him. And this inspires him. And he gets really into the folklore about it and down the rabbit hole. And he starts painting again, which is great for him. Um, but he's too cavalier about the, the lore. And he does the thing that sets all of this in motion, which is he says Candyman five times in the mirror with his girlfriend um, protesting. And that, of course, what are you, conjures um, the Candyman, the version of Candyman that we've been given through this kid's folklore. Um, It's not Tony Todd of the previous film. That lore was of a... um, of a man in the late 1800s who was also a painter who had um, fallen in love with a subject, a woman who he had been asked to paint a portrait of a white woman. And because he got her pregnant, he was killed violently and had his hand cut off and a hook put in place of it and tortured and ultimately um, killed, killed with bees. Yeah, so they poured honey on him after they met, you know, what do you call it? Uh, um, Discovered. Mutilated him. <laughs> yeah. And he was stung to death by bees. That's the, that's the Candyman of the first movie. So in this one, we're, we're dealing with a different, although very similar, somebody who is sort of wrongfully murdered. I guess everybody who's murdered is wrongfully murdered, aren't they? <laughs> that's the whole <laughs> idea of murder. Um, anyway... So, so, uh, man, this is a long one. Here we go. Still going. Um, so in this movie, we've got a different Candyman, but similar construct. Um, and our painter artist friend, um, starts to kind of go crazy. Maybe, um, he gets kind of, uh, possessed with the, the ideas of the Candyman. He makes his art, um, wrapped up in those ideas he presents an art piece that is literally a mirror and asks people to say Candyman five times in that mirror behind that mirror which is a nice callback to the first movie which where they tra- traveled through behind bathroom mirrors to get into the the sort of hidden space of the old projects um he put he hangs his new art in in a um, gallery showing and this then sort of starts a cascade of people learning about this lore, saying Candyman, getting murdered, and all of those murders kind of tie back to him. Anthony. Um, I want to use your name. Right. Yeah. And Anthony, meanwhile, also, who is he in his search and sort of uh, research, he's been stung by one of Candyman's bees. And that bee sting, um, infects and grows the infection grows up through his 
hand into his arm into kind of his neck and body and is kind of taking him over as you know a visual representation of the you know the possession of or whatever you want to call it of the lore or of the entity that is Candyman. um so yeah what do i do yada 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 <laughs> um candy man kills a bunch of people anthony spirals um, it kind of all leads to him and the a a person he had become sort of friends with. Uh, you know, in researching the lore, he had met this guy who runs a laundromat in you know in and around Cabrini Green, William and, Burke. Yes, and Burke has now given him a lot of information about that lore. We find out that Burke is the child from the opening um that had uh um sort of inadvertently gotten this candy man killed in the 80s and turns out he's kind of lost it too and anthony's girlfriend whose name was what Damn, brianna or is it brianna oh brianna that's right she gets wrapped up in it, up in it obviously, because she's sort of trying to figure out what's up with her boyfriend. Um, and we are led to this moment um, where Burke effectively has fallen in. I don't know. I mean, he's kind of lost his mind in that it, he's wrapped up in the the many facets of the lore of Candyman and. He's turning or helping to turn Anthony into a new version of Candyman. Um, which then gives us a nice sort of final girl sequence. Um, although we'll talk about why this particular way of depicting a final girl is some of the best stuff ever. Um, and she ultimately gets away. Um, but her boyfriend, Anthony, does suffer um, a fate of turning into a new candy man. And can you explain for There's me? There's so much more. I don't even know. <laughs> and can you help me out with just something that I, I could use some clarification on what when, when, so Burke is helping to wants to turn Anthony into a new candy man. Like what exactly is his aim there? Like, isn't it something about getting, getting vengeance or. Yeah. I think what it is, is, what he explains is that there have been many, many, if not countless examples of black men who have been killed wrongfully at the hands of white men or white people. And that has sometimes or often created this vengeful spirit that we collectively have have kind of identified or or given the label of Candyman to over the years. So like maybe not always having that label, but there are quote unquote many Candyman versions um, over the years. And really that's just a, what they're saying is that's um, a label for black men who have been wrongfully killed by white people and 
the spirit that lives on, the vengeful spirit that lives on, we're going to call Candyman. Um, so there have been a lot of them. They give a bunch of examples, right? Like he says that Tony Todd's version, which is, uh, the character's name is, um, oh God, now I forget. But um, starts with an R. Um, Daniel Ro- Robite. Um, he was sort of the first one. And then in the early 1900s, there was a kid who was riding his bike who got, who like looked at a white girl wrong and got accused. And this is very Emmett Till feeling. Um, he was killed and he became a candy man. And there, you know, so he, he lists off a handful of, of examples of this. And he's saying that, you know, Anthony now is going to become the new one. Um, we can, t- I have a theory, sort or not a theory, but I have a sense of kind of thematically why that's relevant to have Burke wanting to create the Candyman. He make, he basically sets Anthony up to be killed by the cops, like almost in a prescient way. He's like, this is what's going to happen because this is what's what always happens. But he's, he's orchestrating it, which creates this new layer of just, it's just dark. It's just really messed up that you would think he would want to not, as a black man, he would not want to, you know, um, continue that trend or be a part of continuing that trend. But I think it, that creates a really interesting, you know, thing to discuss. Um, but ultimately, that's what he does. He creates a scenario. He calls the cops and says, hey, there's a crazy guy with a hand, a hook for a hand, and he's killing people, and you need to get here so that the cops will show up and and shoot him on sight, which is exactly what ends up happening. And by doing that, he creates the new Candyman that Anthony is the sort of... Right. Um, I followed all that. I was just a little unclear on like what his motivation was. I missed that part of his speech. I think, yeah, I mean, I think that his motivation is this is a thing that has always existed and I'm going to continue that thing on. I'm going to be a part of continuing that thing on so that we can have this vengeful spirit going around and exacting its vengeance on people who do shitty shit. Okay. That's my sense of it. Cool. I'm not sure he really explicitly says it that, but that's that's my sense of it. Great. Um. So then that happens, and then Anthony's girlfriend, uh, what did we say her name was? Brianna, gets away. (laughs) All right. Shall we move on? Was that the longest one I've ever done? (laughs) I think so. It may be tied. All right. Here we go, then, for our next big section here. Oh, wait. I forgot a part that's really important. Anthony. The reason he's connected to Candyman and the Candyman lore in the first place is because he is the baby that Candyman kidnapped in the first movie and that Helen, the grad student, ended up saving from the bonfire. Yes, that That's is. That's an important detail <laughs> and, and very much ties the movies together. Agreed. Great. All right. Then with that, here we go. Next section. What worked? What worked? What worked for you? What worked for you? What 
what worked, Ryan? All of those things that I just mentioned. <laughs> right. Well, just to get out of the way, since it was a thread you already started, and it's one that, yeah, as you said, maybe we can't speak to too too much just to get out of the way. The just that if it's if if you're gonna say something about historical racism, this it was so smart to just not have it rooted in this one 1800s case up until now. But just, yeah. nope, this has just been going on through every generation. There's been multiple, multiple yeah. ones. I thought that was, yeah, really smart. Yeah, I think maybe the the thing I love the most and am, am affected by the most in this movie is the underlying um, sense of intergenerational trauma that exists within the black community in America, in the U S yeah. And so it's so, I mean, it's so well constructed to give you a sense of that, that I was like, okay, this is really hard and heavy and, and sad and moving and and all those things. So upfront too, just about just, God, I mean, awkward's too small of a word. I was going to say awkwardness, trying to live with it all. But just um, these, like, I just thought the look, you know, getting into gentrification specifically was so smart, just as far as like, well, here they are now living in this same area. They have money and can afford these apartments. It happens to be in the same location. It's just, it just acknowledges that that's a lot to take in. Yeah, I mean, you the whole movie has these constant kind of diametric um, aspects of like what world black people are, you know, like are quote unquote allowed to sort of live in. You know, there's all these gatekeepers in this movie. The I, I tell you, the the art um, critic in particular. The scene where she just completely trashes his art and says, "Oh yeah, it's all the same kind of thing," um, you know, gentrification. Like artists have always talked about gentrification or like made their art about that, and they've she's I can't remember exactly what she says, but I was so it made me so mad in the moment because I was just like, "This is the same shit over and over again." These like critics walking in and acting like they know what that experience is like and then judging it because that's their job. And it it made me, it just made me fucking, I was so angry. And so <laughs> later her turning and because there are murders ha- that happened, suddenly being interested in his art and thinking it's good, I was like, I I hate this. I hate her. I hate everything about it. I hope she dies. Like I Like, it was... Per, the perfect sort of, you know, tone for that stuff. Wow, that's, uh, I think it speaks to your anger that even when she comes around, you hate her more. <laughs> like, yes. So yes, that because means it's, she, it's she's absolutely, right? She's absolutely irredeemable, though, in that sense. A hundred percent. I don't, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because it's such bullshit. I, I went, you know, I recently went to a gallery showing. And my girlfriend, who is a fine artist, and I, it's really interesting to walk into those spaces because there's a lot going on. And like, <laughs> you, 
you see all these different personalities, like in particular in LA, this is not true everywhere, but in LA, you see, um, you see a thing that exists of people being there to be seen rather than to actually consume the art. And it's a weird, it's such a weird vibe. Velvet like, Buzzsaw kind of touched on all this. With yes, other, exactly. Yeah. It, it, it's very in that sort of, in that realm. Um, but I really, yeah, that, having this movie revolve or like live in that world and the world of the projects or the history of the projects in Chicago, that dichotomy of those two worlds was I think incredible setup to use because it, we, we get everything we need to know, but it also creates what kind of, I think what you were starting to get at, it creates this almost confusion, maybe confusion is the wrong word, but like this paradox, I guess of like the characters we're watching who are all black are living in really nice places right like they're they've they've surpassed the trope of the disenfranchised artist who has to live in poverty to make their way you know as a as a um what do you call it um a rite of passage or something in order to to get further up the chain like we've passed that era of these characters lives if it existed at all which you know i think they suggest that it did um but in doing that we we still see that there are these gatekeepers surrounding them constantly and telling them what they need to do in order to make good art or to be successful so it never ends like i love that about this you can have the you could live in a beautiful condo apartment whatever it is in a amazing part of town and yet there will in in the world we live in. There will still be these assholes that that will surround you and use you for what's good for them, and at the same time tell you that you are not good enough, or tell you to the, your face that you are good enough if it serves them. Yeah, and like man, all of the scenes that deal with that. That's not like that's not even the Candyman stuff. You know what I mean? Like that's just the baseline of the world that these characters live in. And that's horrifying as in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. So man, there's a lot. Well, and I think you mentioned this up front, but I mean, what worked for me and maybe there, I'm sure there's more to it and I could be off in some ways, but just trying to think like thematically why artist as protagonist, protagonist as artist for this. And I think you said it with like, it's you're just you're you're in communication with the your history and your present and um trying to trying to process that in some way that would that is gonna have some kind of positive result. Um yeah. that you know, and that there's all sorts more, you know, that's just a huge, huge discussion on purpose of art. But um Oh my god, right. Yeah, but But it's I, it's so smart to have the main character have become an artist, right? Because there is this uh inherent connection to the original movie in which that candyman was originally an artist. He was a painter. And to have this character, our main character, Anthony, also be a painter, 
not only is just a nice, I guess, contrivance, if you want to call it that or downplay it, but like it's it's nice to have that. But it says so much about what broadly thematically we're talking about, which is how the people who have experienced these traumas and intergenerational trauma often are not the people who tell the story, who create the narrative about that experience. But historically speaking, the people who maybe are, well, are best suited to create that narrative and tell that story tend to be artists and tend to be, you know, the. I mean, through their art, they are actually able to actionably create that narrative. So the act of creation as a painter, as an artist in general, um, on a micro level, we've Anthony is doing that. On a macro level, the filmmakers are doing that, right? And so, like, I think that single choice is one of the smartest things about this movie. Yeah, micro, macro, and, and meta. meta <laughs> yeah, meta, sense. yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's just genius. I'm thinking about, too, it's making me think how I just thought it was so... Well, I mean, just smart in the sequel sense, just to you take that baby from the first one and he's our guy yeah. for the new one. But then on top of that, just you know, tying to these themes and whatnot, there's just so much going on with, well, at any given moment, we're just all living this, uh, you, you know, in context with just a horrible, horrible history. And when you're a person of color, like and the characters in the story and Anthony here, you know, you just that that trauma, whatever it all is, is just multitudes worse, right? Yeah. So his, so some, there's just something about him not knowing about his history as a baby and like discovering this yes. whole incident that happened and having that direct connection to it that's a mystery to him that he has to go and dig up from his mother and all that. Like, I don't know if it's a metaphor, but just just ties into all that really well. About uh, in, yeah, I mean, you know, in relation to one's history. Exactly. It's this thing that I think uh, so many people are told this. And in particular, I think marginalized people have been told this by, to, by white people or non-marginalized people often. We didn't tell you the truth because we wanted to protect you. That That concept is so dangerous and just so horrible like people need to know the truth they, they and this extends through everybody right because you see it all the time you see it, it it's used as a political tool constantly right i mean right now it's happening in in certain states legislation goes through is going through or being pushed to prevent the actual truth of histories the ugly truths of american history is being taken out of curriculum because people think they want to, quote unquote, protect their children from those ugly truths. So they're going to eliminate that that reality of history. That's so, so counter to the idea of like getting in touch with the things that have happened that grow empathy for other people in the world. Right. I mean, I think the just why that's so flawed 
but at the same time acknowledging the instinct is a way to put it sure is you can um say I think people with that instinct, it's just that they see zero, like, hope at all. They're just completely hopeless of, like, how do we even get out of this situation with this kind of history? How do we build from here? So they just would rather think, think, erase it, start anew. But the thing is, you can't do that from a, a not... Yeah, you have to be accurate. You have to know where you're coming from. Like, even though maybe we don't... It's hard to to picture what the answer is like let's say if there is like what how to best carry forth or whatever it's <laughs> we know it's rooted in at least acknowledging the reality of what happened it's not right. er- erasing it so i mean and this mo- this there. movie says this right right up front like one of the first scenes when we get this kind of it's kind of an expositional scene of uh anthony and brianna and brianna's uh, brother and his boyfriend are all having a little like drink dinner party, you know, get together. And the brother, they're talking about the apartment and, and that's really nice and, and sort of talking about Cabrini green and projects and all that. And they say, forget the exact line, but he says something about like, yeah, you just sort of not, they knocked it down to cover up the, the history of it all and just built something up on top of it and moved on. That, that is exactly what we're talking about, mm-hmm. right? Like, like just because you, you like got rid of a thing doesn't mean the thing is gone. You're just ignoring it. You're just pretending that it's gone. The root of so many horror movies is like uh, putting the evil in this chest and burying it underground, or right. you know, whatever it is. Yeah, it's go- you're it's gonna get dug up. Yeah, and it's gonna get opened. Like like <laughs> so, the, tr- the troll in Ernest Scared Stupid. That's right. So acknowledge it. And then maybe you'll take back the power a little bit. Maybe. Anyway, so I mean, the thing is, it's like we could go on and on and on because this movie is just it's it's so layered with these things. Well, um, we'll, throughout, we'll keep touching on it all. But I mean, I just wanted to mention the thing that was the biggest thing for me, as I said, in any horror movie is that that mood and that atmosphere and how that all adds up. You know, use your words again, macro and micro. In the micro sense, that then extends to where you can have specific moments where just it's all culminating, where you get a genuine sense of just eeriness or inexplicableness of something supernatural. Um, And in this, it's just doubly the fun of the context of kind of being a slasher uh, intensity over it all in these moments too. Yep. Well, and man, I mean, even like... We haven't even gotten it really into the movie. I mean, like I'll backtrack even further. The opening credits of the movie showing all of them in like a mirrored form is almost also exactly it's not it's it's not to the the point. Sorry, it's not the credits to clarify. It's like the studio um, logos at the beginning. Right. It's it's doing the micro thing of, hey, we're in a Candyman movie and Candyman lives behind the mirror. But also doing the the macro or meta thing of like often the the person that the story is about is trapped kind of behind the mirror and and you know the storyteller is on the other side deciding uh the narrative. 
That's a weird way of putting it. But yes, you know, like I think there is a bit, bigger metaphor to having, you know, being on the other side of the mirror. Totally. Just like Jack Bauer in Mirrors. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what? I had to think of that movie when you're just thinking of you I did do too. you do a movie where the a large part of the conceit or more so the, the conceit of the killer in this case that's been set up where it's got to do with behind a mirror, um, only appears in a mirror, invisibility. That's kind of what I was talking about too when I said the extension from the mood and atmosphere to the kills specifically, where it's like you can't. It's I don't know. It's just interesting where it's at a point where it's like we even though we've seen it a bunch of times and like we feel like we all know what it is to kind of do that device, let's say, of a killer in the reflection. Uh, it's just good. I mean, this one you you you. There's no way around the idea. There's no way around that being a trope or so much. But when you just do it and just sort of overlook any of that and just embrace it as the conceit, I mean, it just still totally works. You just just doing a good job of it. Like every time there was just, you know, the thing, and I say things like we've seen before, but yet we're just working so well of like, whether it's we see him spooking by in the reflection and then we grab someone, but then when we cut to them, not in the reflection, they're being like, like eerily, but just aggressively, violently, like pulled back and held by the unseen force yeah. who we then cut back so to, good. or the hook in the reflection going across the neck, but then, you know, nothing's there when it's going across. Right. I mean, just to get out of the way, this is all what we're on to. I think my favorite moment in the film, just as far as what I felt like a most affected, ooh, I'm looking at like, you know, like I've said in other Supernatural films where we watched where I, I feel like a camera's just captured a ghost on film kind of thing and I get <laughs> yeah. chills from it. It was the moment, um, I think it was in the girl's bathroom at the end of that kill when she's look looks into, it's I think it's just her looking to the reflection of the thing that falls on the floor yeah, the compact, the little compact mirror. Yeah, and the way he's gliding across. Oh, it's like, so good. That, it's, and that's the stuff that I love, too, about not just films, but horror films specifically, is just the behind-the-scenes sense of like figuring out, okay, what's the speed of his hover that just feels right? <laughs> like, for just yeah. something that... Uh, I, just get so excited yeah. about that all that's How so... do we hone in on the eeriest version of this? Yeah. Like, what is the speed that gets our skin to, like, crawl? And just the, the fact that there <laughs> is something that, like, we can... That feels correct to that for something that we right. don't actually have a source to reference for. Like, yeah, what that like would feel perfect, or look like. Finding the perfect amount of unnaturalness. Yeah. Oh, my... Ah, I loved it. And then... um. Just to say, too, since you touched on the beginning bit, you talk about the opening uh, uh, cards in reverse. The opening credits, another thing that I feel like, well, this isn't a long, a long-standing trope, but I feel like a new kind of device that's used a lot in uh, modern horror a lot is the the flipped camera, the being totally. over 180 degrees. But again, like it, it works so well for this. It's just so on point. I'm talking about like the opening credits with just all the buildings are from this yep. this reverse perspective. Um, but I will say, on top of that, and this is, this is an overall thing through the whole movie. But I just noticed from then there, I'm like, ooh, why is this upside down stuff working so well? In addition, just to itself and how it's shot the color correction, Tim, like it keyed in on Dude. something so good where it's like. It's not, 
I don't know how to describe it. It's it's just, it's, it's it's pleasing. It it wasn't it didn't feel it didn't feel like cheap. Like oh, just put a filter over it and it makes it scary. No. It it actually it was legitimately like creepy and set the tone and atmosphere and all that. I, I was just again just really impressed with that. Yeah, I it's an interesting man. They yeah, whoever did, whoever did the color correction and and the cinematographer like they absolutely like excel on the highest level of of creating crisp visual atmosphere in a mildly desaturated tone but still maintaining a color palette that is super warm like it's all sort of autumn warmth colors everything's in these like really warm yellows browns reds um it's but it's not it's not like grainy it's not like um you know sometimes you see like that desaturated thing and it just all becomes grayscale mm-hmm. which i hate um Maggie. it's not that at all yeah i just don't like it <laughs> Maggie, oh my god that's like one of the worst <laughs> culprits of of that thing um so it's not that because it i mean you know what it kind of feels like to me i i'm not by any means an expert in this so i i may be kind of speaking out of turn but it feels like it feels like film or at least some type of older vintage film vibe i don't know i don't know why i think that but i don't know i i think it's the opposite it's it's new it's future it's it's progressing it's taking what came before like how you described all those elements i think we're exactly on point where it's doing this yet it's also doing this visually it's using colors yes it also feels kind of desatted because it is embracing that clean crisp modern you know way cameras can shoot um yeah so that that's what excites me about it too I yeah I don't know I yeah I guess I'm not I don't know how to describe that thing, um, one way or the other it's incredibly well done. Um, so <laughs> and there is color in it. It's not like you know there are colors like bright reds, bright blues. Like there's a lot of that. There's neons and all that stuff. But it's yeah, just, it is are, incredible. I want to say one thing about the building shot, like the upside yeah. down building shot. The putting it, not being able to see the tops of the buildings because the cloud layer is is hanging low, but in our perspective is the essentially the floor of the shot. It, it was so striking to me and affecting to me because first of all, it was dis, like very disorienting. It's not. It's they were at an angle that we really haven't quite seen before. I I, I haven't. We've seen upside down shots and they do what they do and and, and often they do it well. Um, we saw it in Midsummer, right? But that's a really um, uh, balanced, like symmetrical upside down shot. Climax is, is another one, yeah. Yeah, Climax does it, that's right. This does it in such a way that it felt like the buildings were like coming out of a pool of fog. Yeah. And I was like, what is happening? But then on a metaphorical level, I, I don't even like I could go on and on and on of, of like trying to figure out why it's so affecting and like the metaphor of it. But like 
I'm not going to because it's it's I would just talk in circles. But whatever <laughs> it is is so it's just so pleasingly unsettling. Yeah. Well, <laughs> if, I think if you can do that. I'm just I'll I maybe I'll succinctly put a metaphor, which is like we think of buildings as um your skyscrapers you're building up. It's a sense it's a it's progress. It's supposed to represent like positive and forward thinking and all that the human spirit can achieve. Yet we know the inverse of all that is very much true in uh, the human condition in today's society. So it's just like, nope, we're, as long as we're building up, we're just as much still digging a hole down. And yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like the actual perspective is from somebody on the ground looking up to these things, but we are seeing it upside down. Right. So in effect, that person who is on the ground, the, the quote unquote, you know, lowest level person, if you want to call it that, in this shot is now looking down onto the elite. The people who have achieved something, right? Yeah. Because they're at the top of the building. Which it's just it's just a way of getting you to look at familiar objects in a fresh light, which is literally yeah. like my favorite thing about filmmaking, probably. Right. And any me it's just like t- making someone feel like they can some an object they see every day, something they're so familiar with, getting them to look like at it like they're an alien from another planet who's just been dropped down and seen this thing for the first time. Uh, yeah. yeah. And having the buildings in that fog or cloud cover sort of implies that those people who have gotten to that place of achievement or whatever you want to call it are being drowned in the pool of the the sky, I guess, which is man, it's just really good. I don't know. <laughs> like it's, it says a lot. All or right. it, it evokes a lot. Other uh, broad things, if we're still there, um, that worked for me. Just the whole, like when you're dealing with the supernatural, to have that perfect balance of you can describe something, like the origin of something, of where it's like, it's never described too much to cross a line of somehow allowing you to go, oh, it's just this. Okay, got it. It's always... What I'm trying to say, like, where somehow the more we learn about it, just makes it more unknowable at the same time. Hmm. You know, like, like, what is he? You know, like we get <laughs> where right. it's just all these blurry lines between he's uh, fear, tension, racism, all that, just tension, just incarnate. Mm-hmm. yet also a ghost yet also just people who have lived who have been alive and then died it's just all that just it's it just gets at that that's just a sort of even though they're separate they become a unified force in a way i, I don't know man it's just yeah i mean i if i had to try to like define it i would say that the candy man is a embodiment of intergenerational trauma Right, and it's but like, then even then, like, well, what is that? You know, there's no... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I don't know. It, in this case, it's it's a vengeance spirit, I guess. Right, and even there you have to say, I guess. Like, right. what? It's, what is yeah, he? Yeah. What is it? Like, what is this? It's, but it's just, an but icon. What, I don't know. But then it's what, so good. What rings true about it is we get that 
all that, like all, all how you just put it, there is a genuine force and power behind that, that like we can buy into. Absolutely. It's all powerful enough to then create this <laughs> spirit or whatever too. Oh man, it's so good. Yeah. Um, I mean, and then using the the design, this sort of puppetry design. Um, how how would you describe the that? shadow puppets it's of the? It's shadow puppets. It's two dimensional shadow puppets that are, um, uh, that are puppeted by uh wire rather than string. Yes, and, and for, that, we're talking about for the flashback sequences. The whole movie wasn't this way. <laughs> Just if, you, a, a, I, I'd watch a whole movie. If anyone's is listening to this and hasn't seen it or knows yeah. nothing about it, <laughs> no, Tim's specifically referring to there are flashback sequences done in a shadow puppet telling style. Yeah, the design of that was so incredibly effective, and just such a nice like. I think, you know, the first reference, there's two references that come to mind of of films that use this device of like, if you're going to do flashbacks, let's change it up, right? Like, let's leave the real world depiction of that and actually do something different because it is a story and humans have been using many different um, mediums for storytelling. And so I think it's really cool to get a different medium and in, in, in this, you know, the folklore storytelling. Um, Deathly Hollows, the Harry Potter movie, does it really effectively. Um, the animation sort of sequence in that is super cool and actually reminded me slightly of this version. Um, made me wonder if the same, like, design team did those, but probably not. Um, also, Kill Bill does it, right? There's a whole animated flashback section of Kill Bill. You know, so I think it's really, it's effective and I enjoyed it. What's neat about this one is that it's as if this same technique could have been being used to tell the story in the 1800s in the 1800s. It's the same technology that's been available since then. So it's sort of... I mean, yeah, it's been available throughout time in a way, right? Like (laughs) we... We as we as humans have always had a, a a fire source and done shadows on the wall to depict stories and like carry those stories on. So that that's something I just think it's 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 rooted in humanity and storytelling. So it's really cool. Um, one aspect of when they were doing it that really stood out to me is the the initial time that we get that um device used is being told by Burke I believe about the Candyman story of the first movie and there are tiny details in his telling of the story that are inaccurate and I immediately was like this is so smart because that is the root of lore it's a it's a sort of it's a malleable thing the te- the teller always gets to you know adjust the story for their you know to to eff- the effect that serves their version and i i love that because that is kind of on a macro level what this movie is doing as well it's taking a previous ver- telling of a story and putting its own flavor on it 
And now granted in this one, they're also connecting it to that story. So, but it's just, there's, it's so deeply layered in all of that stuff that I, I was like, oh, that's right. You know, like anytime a, a, a folklore type story or, or, um, you know, like what's the other, the, the other, um, say, say a thing in the mirror thing, uh, Bloody Mary. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I bet you regionally, Every time you go to a different place and somebody knows of the Bloody Mary sort of thing, their depiction of it is going to be slightly different. So that I think that's what I'm getting at is that that's just a truism in in lore that it's always like it's always got a little bit of a flavor, different sort of versions of that. But it is ultimately or often based in some truth. Well, I mean, you just think it got me thinking like the media that to have an animated medium or a shadow puppet medium, I guess that's not quite, I don't know. Does that constitute as animation? I don't know. Whatever. (laughs) It's, it's inherent. It is inherently effective and perfect for kind of telling a legend or lore for those exact reasons you're saying is because it, we get the broad strokes and the important things, the details like the visual details in this case, there's a lot that's left to the imagination that we're still built around, yet there's a core effectiveness that's still at play that feels like the truth coming through. Is, you, know, you know what I mean at all? That yeah. Makes sense? Yeah. So it's, it's like, yeah, it's the Candyman legend. Like to see it in just regular shot, like, like people, like History Channel reenactments, it would just totally <laughs> undercut yeah. it because then you would just go, oh, this is exactly what happened. Even if it's, even if it is supposed to be altered or not exactly what happens, that's the sense we get if we're watching real actors in the reenactments versus this way, yeah. it is just straight up lore legend. Yeah, and it leaves a lot of the, um, a lot of what you're getting from the story is left for you to construct in your imagination which often is way more effective right like it's almost like a show less kind of rule so that you fill in the the gaps yeah which is awesome um and that sort of ties in slightly in terms of the sort of like what you're saying the getting to the truth like finding the truth in in that our the the actual plot of this and in our main character like anthony like his his story in this is really to find the truth of himself who it's it is a search it's his search to figure out who he is and you can use that on a on a surface level of like we're all trying to figure out who we are what our purpose is in art we're often trying to figure out what our artistic purpose is or like who we are as an artist but it goes much deeper into in his narrative of or it, it extends for him into who is he as an artist who is he as an individual what's the truth of his actual life but then who is he as a black man in the US and then who is he in relation to this lore of black men who have been wrongfully or the injustice of black men in the history of the u.s like it's it's extending throughout all of those things and he ultimately becoming the lore is such a cool journey to watch 
I mean, him at the end where his face is obscured by the bees is some of the coolest and most like poignant imagery for this story. Because he he effectively becomes the lore and he becomes faceless. Tim, you're you describing it that way. Insanely genius to me. Well, you describing it that way of he's becoming the lore. That's so cool. It's so cool. Because like just kind of connected to what we were already talking about, how you know, as if there's an effort to erase history as if it's not a part of us. There's this, inc- I don't know, there's this very human, um, uh, 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 God, how do you describe it? Ex- human, I don't know. It's, what's the word for like trick Condition? experience? <laughs> oh. I don't know. Uh, but but you, you'll, you'll get what I mean. That when a, something that, could one day be a part of lore and very likely will be is happening then and there it 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 doesn't really feel like it like it might like you might have this sort of like sense in your chest or whoa this is historical this is important but at the same time it's also just like no this is just your reality happening this is the visceralness of like getting his hand chopped off and a hook shoved in it you know it's like that scene man (laughs) right but there's it's like you're being directly confronted with that fact of oh this is all this stuff that's lore and legend and maybe i'd like to think is just shadow puppets actually is it's just people experiencing experience i don't know how else to put it it's um it it just closes that gap of disconnect that we can have with uh, history forgetting that history is also happening right now you know yeah. I mean it's it's both cinematically um pleasing and just exciting to watch as a movie like as a visual thing but also deeply deeply rooted in an actual history and then thematically you know <laughs> intense intensely connected um to the history and to the the the, you know the the just it's a movie (laughs) and i think that's incredible like that's i guess that's kind of my point that's my larger point in the movies that we've watched that i've been the most thrilled by some version of that is happening there's an interconnectivity or a intersectionality i guess of deep historical truth and a good story depiction that is compelling. And when you get those two things working in conjunction with each other, like intersecting properly, I'm like, okay, I'm, this is it. I'm in. This is everything I want. Well, I feel like that could be a good segue to our big finale because I feel like that's another major thing we both want to touch on. Yeah, absolutely. I have, <laughs> I have two ama- like two things stand out in particular about the finale to me. Number one, the deep, deeply tragic component of the the trauma that has driven Burke 
to inflict this horror onto a fellow black man says so much about how trauma affects us as human beings so far and like even as far as inflicting that pain onto somebody who is like you which is obviously very counterintuitive right like you would think and we see this this is a very common thing in trauma that as the victim of trauma you inadvertently often inflict that same pain onto people close to you and that's the cycle of that thing and it goes on and on and on forever unless you can somehow break it and you obviously can't break it if the world you live in is constantly putting its boot on your neck so that i i just that that felt so deeply tragic to me like that that character is is having that experience and inflicting that pain on people that don't i don't think anybody deserves to have pain inflicted on them but like in this case in this story the people we care the most about are getting the worst um and second to that this is the first movie we've watched i think where the quote-unquote final girl never does the tropey wrong thing in every instance that brianna is is faced with a horror trope like don't go in there kind of thing she chooses the right she makes the correct choice the choice of not falling into the trap or the trope like she open remember she goes in she opens a basement door and you're like oh don't go down there and she literally goes nope and closes the door and walks away (laughs) oh right yeah (laughs) right it's so genius i mean later there's and and she's the solve right like she solves the the problem she's faced with this (laughs) bullshit binary choice of either tell the version of the story that the cop tells you to tell so you can save yourself or you're an accomplice those are your options neither is good so she just says, well, I'm going to do, I'm not going to do either of those. I'm not going to take the false choice. I'm going to inflict my generational, intergenerational trauma onto you. Which is insanely brilliant to me. By doing what? By, <laughs> by evoking her new, ver- the new version of Candyman, who is her boyfriend. Like, talk about a messed up choice. She's essentially sealing the deal. That by doing that moment was my other favorite moment in the film. Maybe that is my favorite moment. Is her I mean, decision to summon Candyman there? It's like so obvious, yet I didn't see it coming, and is just so satisfying. Like for so many reasons, especially just when you're yeah. when you're caught up in the movie kind of way, you know. Yeah. Uh, like, oh my god! When like, she started doing it, <laughs> right. <laughs> When she started doing it, I was just like, oh my God, yeah, she's going to show these fucking guys. Like, so. <laughs> uh, yeah, satisfying is barely even scratches the surface. Like, it is ridiculously cathartic. Um, So, that, like, that's really it for me. I mean, she, I love watching, I love that they were like, yeah, we're not going to fall for it. We're not going to do the trope. We're going to actually anti-trope it. We're going to let her, we're going to show her being 
faced with the trope and have her choose the better thing so that we don't i mean i get it like those tropes exist for a reason right like it's affecting for the audience to be like no don't go in there or no like don't run up the stairs run out the front door like what are you doing that's fun but this isn't the movie for that right like you dis you sort of do a disservice to that character if you if you have her doing those things yeah um I could talk about this a lot more, but there's really only one other thing that that I want to mention um, that kind of sealed the deal. Uh, the gore notwithstanding, because I love all of that, and that sawing the handoff scene is, holy shit, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> um, the gore is so good. His decay is so good. All of that. The design is incredible. The design of this other version of Candyman, the one that's sort of throughout the movie, not the Tony Todd version, but then having Tony Todd be in there at the very end as well. All of that's brilliant. But I think the thing that kind of hit me the most was the scene with Vanessa Williams and realizing that that is the character from the first movie and that that he is the baby from the first movie and her performance in that scene is so good. Every little detail about it is is fantastic. Um, even d- down to the, the the scar on her arm, like putting her in a sleeveless shirt so that we can see her arm and having the scar from when Helen hit her with the butcher knife in the first movie. Like all of that is so pleasing and and really like, I mean, I don't know if Vanessa Williams has been like what her career has been like, but she cr- crushing. I mean, she crushed it in the first movie. Like her performance in the first movie is exceptional as well. And seeing her in this with a sort of a different version of that, a more subdued, but like same energy, same, obviously same character. Like, damn it. <laughs> it's just so good. <laughs> so I could, there's many other things in this movie that are fantastic, but like, you know. We would have a four-hour episode if we kept going. <laughs> well, uh, if you give your actor MVP shout-out, I agree. She was incredible, and it made me all that much more sad I didn't watch the first one leading into it. She, it, it kept, I need to see it again, too, just because it kept throwing me for a loop how she looked exactly the same. I know that's superficial or whatever, but like, <laughs> I like, was really thrown off at first, not having just had the continuity from the first one. I'm like, wait, she's his mom? What? She looks so young. Um, yeah. Sorry, that's superficial the detail. Jeans. But um, yeah. my MVP actor shout-out is for Coleman Domingo as William Burke. Like his dude, the way he carried the weight of not just his own personal history of that story of seeing Candyman as a kid, which was a great opening sequence, by the way, too, of just him coming out of the wall, felt rooted to the original, all that stuff. But he also just carried that whole weight of that ineffable thing I was trying to describe earlier of like what even is Candyman, where it's like he's he carried that weight of coming to terms with, he can never quite define what it is, yet he knows what it is, yet he feels what it is, yet he has a sense of uh, the historical, well, the history that Candyman has and all that. He just carried that weight. His voice and look was just so spot on for like (laughs) exactly who you want that character to be. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, and then it was fun having to the connections with, uh, I guess maybe it was new material recorded with Virginia Madsen um, and her voice. I think so, yeah. Which yeah. is amazing. And then, of course, Tony Todd's uh, visage coming back just that yep. little bit. Um, but like whatever that kind of weight that Tony Todd brought to the role and just the the idea of Candyman more, I should say, which is why it's so great. They still worked him in. Uh, yeah, I think William Burke, Coleman Domingo playing William Burke. Uh, yeah, he, he carried forth that weight that's so important for this film, for this series, for this character. Yeah. And also, uh, one last thing. Just shout out to the the end credits. Um, using that puppetry, two-dimensional puppetry thing to sh- depict these examples of injustice. And the space of the artist gallery. In the space of the artist gallery. Yeah. That was so, so genius. I was... I mean, I really felt like there, like there were, I don't know, ten people maybe in the theater where I watched it, but like half of them left right as the credits started rolling. I was like, "You, you guys fucked up." Well, it's because like, the stupid lights go watch. on as soon as it ends. I hate that so <laughs> I much. I hate it. Oh my god. Yeah. But man, you do yourself a disservice if you if you don't stay and watch that. It's super powerful. Yeah, I love that. So. Cred- credits as an extension and part of the film itself. The movie's not over yet, folks. That's right. All right, well, that's it for me. I mean, that's not really it for me, but that's, uh, I think, in in the uh, interest of brevity. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhat. <laughs> well, yeah, no, let's figure out. I'm still trying to, to make heads or tails of how I felt about some things. So do you want to do that in the next section here? Yeah, I'd, right. I'd love to hear the, what you've got. All right, here we go. Next section. What did not work? It's not ready yet. Seems to work okay. No, something important's missing. What did not work? (laughs) All right, so again, not quite what did not work, but I'm still trying to suss out some things here, Tim. Okay. Obviously, I love body horror so much and i get the metaphor but i didn't know how to feel in this first viewing of his decay from the bee sting it I, mm-hmm. either it felt like did i did i actually need it was it just too okay it's a metaphor i get it whatever did it have any consequences in the end was it just sort of that it tied to i don't know other other things i may have had with this film where it just kind of felt rushed overall like if we had had more time with it like i don't know how did you how did you feel about and digest his decay i his physical decay oh, yeah <laughs> i thought well i thought it was working on the level of body horror and like it was gnarly i mean i was i was like oh god agreed I this. agreed but i love it in terms of like the sort of, I don't know what you would even call it the 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 efficacy of the of the of the point of it, um, I was okay with it just sort of serving as like a physical representation of the of the infection of the lore. 
Like, that's kind of how I viewed it. Like, it was taking him over. Now, I wondered, and Britt, when we were watching it, she was like, oh, is he is he being burnt because he the, because Candyman originally wanted him to burn in the in the uh, bonfire is that what we're seeing like that that that's actually a burn evolving on him and right. i don't know but that's an interesting idea well no right that's exactly what i was thinking too if it was something that was more tied to like he's turning into candyman like if it was rather than the bee sting idea the yeah, that he's initially burned, and then that's the thing that spreads, which I guess is a, was a weird give-take because a burn, I don't think necessarily, you know, you think of causing an infection like that. But just, I right. don't know, it maybe if it had been more tied to, like, this is his part of his setting up as well as leading to his transformation. I don't know. Well, here's here maybe there's a different way of looking at it. If, if Let's say that what they're getting at is that he is turning into... Tony Todd's Candyman in particular. The the bee sting actually makes sense that that's the impetus because because Daniel Robitaille ultimately died of bee stings. And so if it's starting with that as sort of the representation of his death, that that's what's potentially growing. Rather than a burn, it's more that your body can handle one bee sting, but it can't handle all of them, which then becomes sort of a metaphor for, you know, you as a person can handle being, you know, let's say a black person, you can handle being whatever horrible thing that get, that you have to experience. One time is fine, but when you're connected to, all of the times, like as an extension of like all of the bee stings, it's like death by a thousand paper cuts, right? Like you can handle one paper cut, but you can't handle a thousand. Like it will t- overtake you. And I think maybe there's something in that that I can use to justify this progression of decay or whatever it is. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I'm okay with it being ambiguous. Well, here, let me I then- think because it gets you thinking. Well, then, yeah, let me put it just in the context. Again, this is just very, like, first viewing context here. On the first Mm -hmm. viewing, like I kind of just said, the pacing overall, I don't know. It just felt, like, rushed to me. I wanted it to be, like, five, ten minutes longer. So his his non-physical transformation into his descent into madness and obsession with the Candyman legend, it felt like that was ramping up so well, but then all of a sudden it just, like 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 just someone hit like flipped a switch and it was just like off to the races a bit quickly like i i felt like i stopped being with him in his his descent mm. or like i wasn't observing it as much as i'd like to or seeing that progression like those beats again maybe it's just cuz i was again like first viewing missing it but it just felt rushed and short in that sense so i think maybe that's where i'm coming from with that experience where it's just like all of a sudden then on top of what's already happening so much to take in, he's also has a, a bee sting that's infecting his whole body. Like right. this is a lot. It was just happening quickly. Uh, and so in that context, very first viewing, you could see that uh, it was, it was enough without that <laughs> for me. Yeah. It was already almost yeah. too much without that. 
Well, I almost wonder. Yeah, again, I, I would have to sit down and watch it a couple more times to to really be able to assess this. But I wonder if we needed one more kind of scene with him where he's pushing back against the whatever you want to call it, this sort of possession or trance or uh, obsession that, that he's experiencing where he, he has to snap himself out of it. And we get to see him struggle with it in, in recognition of it one mm-hmm. time, right. Kind of in the middle of all of that before things really kind of go off the rails. Yeah. Cause it kind Maybe. of feels like it's almost a protagonist switch or at least a sort of who we're sympathizing yeah. with switch where it kind of the scene where she feels threatened by him and you know, wants yeah. to get the hell out of there. That was where it was just kind of like, I don't know where, where did that come from? And then all of a sudden we're with her and what's going on with him. I don't know. And then yeah, that's of, true. We didn't get that one sort of moment where he, you know, scares her and then comes back and says, I'm sorry, actually, I'm okay. Which is something you generally do get so that when when he fails to be okay, we feel more sort of weight to it. So, yeah, maybe I could see that. I don't know. And similarly, I don't know, just as far as it feeling rushed, like, I I I bought acting wise like her intensity when she's stabbing the dude at the end <laughs> yeah. she stabs him like 20 times or whatever but like in that moment it just felt like so just like whoa we're here all of a sudden where did this just I don't know and again this is all just probably first time viewing taking it in but just felt like I just wasn't with her in that whatever she was going through in that moment um and so, that's just because I can't relate as much one as one would like or hope, but it felt I like had, it was more I just had, the sort of the characters who we were with at any given time. Uh, it's just we weren't with her enough. I don't know. Well, I had I had a feeling or a thought about that in that I I put that under the anti trope category for the final girl. Instead of like often what we see in that moment in other films is that the final girl, you know, stabs the bad guy in, in, in the eye once and then that's it and it's done. And then the bad guy comes back to life and like comes after her again. Right. We get that the double jump, whatever. To me, it kind of felt like, oh, she's again not falling into the trope. She's she's finishing him off. It's now yeah, this. Huh? I was going to say, now, I also got a bit of a sense of that there was a lot more in the act. Because this is what's called overkill in sort of true crime terms, right? Like, generally speaking, if you stab somebody like two or three times, like, they're pretty much good. Like, they're they're dead already. Like, you've killed them. And overkill cases is this thing of, like, you just get caught in this, like... Um, sort of seeing red thing or whatever it is, I mean, depending on who the killer is, of just like you you lose it and you just keep, you overkill. You just keep going and keep going and keep going. So I, I don't know. I mean, I felt, I personally took it and was like, it kind of feels appropriate, to be honest. Like it feels like 
she just saw some really, really messed up stuff. And she's had a really fucked up week. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of I was like, yeah, I'm with you. Cool. I think you would just just go off. So I don't know. It's weird that whole, like I told you, I loved the, I mean, I loved how, yeah, how it all played out with that, her summoning Candyman at the end. All that was great. Uh, the the sort of the lead up to that finale in the church, super cool. But oh yeah, I don't know. It was weird, like thinking about how you said, yeah, she she didn't end up doing these beats or whatever. That's great. But I wonder from that point on, like there needed to be something else to compensate for that. It just sort of again, it felt like something rushed or like there was there there was I don't know just something more in that ending whether it's like a physical location thing or a time spent mm. somewhere thing where it just felt like it was just kind of i don't know i don't know just just, just missing something and i'm not one to like i'm usually deriding the huge unnecessarily big like you know ending <laughs> so i'm not right so i'm trying to be careful here but and it's just why it feels weird to say, because it's usually not the thing I'm arguing for to say a bit more. Um, but again, I don't know. This is all just my first viewing stuff. I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. I mean, I could see a different depiction of this where they like, you know, end up on the roof of, of a you know, Project Skyscraper and the whole finale takes place there and it's this big scope sort of epic thing and maybe somebody falls off the roof and that's the ending, blah, blah, blah. Like I wouldn't want that. See, that's too much. <laughs> I don't know. Well, that's kind of my that's kind of my point is that like we've we can we've seen that and we know what that feels like and looks like, but that does not that would not serve this story. Yeah. I think and, like, maybe I having it in the low rise pro like abandoned projects of Cabrini Green on the street with the cops like that all felt really right yeah to that me. that all feels right again i just probably need to see it again where it's like i was i was kind of confused on what exactly the the dude's motivation was william burke's motivation was in wanting to mm. make the candy man and then like she was all of a sudden our protagonist still and but i was still wanting to like anthony but what happened with him like what i don't know it was just right. this is no, a I lot to take in which is this my initial impression was like just I, I don't know i just wanted to put it as simply as like make it 10 minutes longer and then there that's that's <laughs> just <laughs> that would have taken care it may, of maybe it was you yeah know? yeah um so it's hard to know Anyway, this makes me want um, to say it again. The only thing I can only say one thing definitively that did not work for me, or oh, that was on the negative spectrum. It's like fine, whatever. I get it. I'm for it in the sense of for practical filming reasons. I will just say I miss the day and age where you could have uh, real bees <laughs> on set <laughs> stinging your actors oh for. God. Like in a contract, I think it was like he gets ten thousand dollars for every sting, a thousand dollars every sting that happens. Like whatever that is, there's just—I'm sorry, CG insects just aren't there yet for me. And there's something just like with real ones in nature that, like the ants and the bees, it just would have been tied so well to this, like and the story and everything at play. Just been like okay. real ants eating a real bee body. I know that sounds so picky, but it's just like that's what we're <laughs> doing here, right? Is we're just trying yeah. to to put these clean demarcations when we have them to try to 
elevate these films even more, hopefully. Yeah. And that's and I, um, I say that so conflictedly too, is because I I'm all for like I don't I don't want another Braveheart to be made with, you know, dealing with horses like that. You know, like it's it's and if I, I should be able to extend that same philosophy to to bees, which are all dying now too. So like I get it. I tried to save a bee the other day. It didn't didn't work. (laughs) Like, I get it. It's great. We have CG, so use it. But unfortunately, it's still not there for me. Yeah. I, you know, I only had one thing that kind of left me, mm, to be honest, it left me wanting more, a little more something, something which was Brianna's dad's storyline and how that was a part of her life and what that kind of meant. I mean, we get that he kind of his own art or maybe inability to create maybe I'm, I'm, I might be kind of pulling that out of uh, uh, inferring that, but um, drove him to, to kill himself. And how that has affected her. Like it's there in the movie. Um, but I kept waiting for it to tie into something bigger. Uh, and it never did. So I don't know. I, I, I don't know if having that. Is necessary to serving her character arc. Um, or if it is something that they used as a jumping off point for further movies possibly which i could get behind um but i don't know it was the only thing in the movie that kind of made left me scratching my head a tiny bit got it cool well if that's all but that's it <laughs> that's it that's the only that's the only thing everything else I'd if love. that's all we gotta suss out then we got one more big section here you ready for it Oh, yeah. Things of note. Things of note! (laughs) This should be interesting. Well, I doubt that that puppet, the, uh, the puppetry who made the puppetry was the same as the Harry Potter people because this was all rooted I, in... I, <laughs> this is all uh, Chicago-based is how they tried to treat everything for this film or default to everything. So the puppetry animation sequences, shout-out, were created by Chicago-based puppet theater company Manual Cinema. There you go. Awesome. You killed it. Uh, this is for for future people listening to this. This is one of the films from the era, uh, films that were much, much delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic. It was originally scheduled to be released June 12th, 2020. And we got in a release eventually. And then that went from September, then to September 25th, 2020. Then again to October 16th, 2020. And we finally got our release August 27th, 2021. Sheesh. Yeah. Um. Great. What did you have? You know, I haven't really dove in much. Um. Um. Yeah, I don't. I don't really have anything. I well, the Halloween Kills trailer was at the front of this. 
I was that got me excited. <laughs> I uh, I'm sure I closed my eyes for that. I did. Good. <laughs> uh, that's smart because I didn't. And I mean, I think it's going to be a cool movie. Yeah. But I, 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 I kind of wish I hadn't watched it. I, I like to give myself my own little trailer where it's like I'll open my eyes a little quickly here and there during the first half. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I caught a bit at the beginning. Like I, now I know like they explain how he survived all that. Like <laughs> it's just, whatever. Um you know what I think is I love that I love that Wikipedia has this already. <laughs> it, it the movie has has been out for two days. Like I guess today would be the third day. Um, no, but as, I saw it as uh, of longer ago. I saw it last week, dude. Did you? Yeah. Wait. Oh, that's right. You're right. It came out on the twenty seventh. Okay. So in wait. So what would that be? Uh, two seven eight nine ten. What we have thirty one days in August. Yeah. So in a week, essentially, it's made twenty seven million in the U.S. <laughs> That's pretty good for the times that we're living in. Yeah, I think it grossed that on top of what a twenty five million dollar budget, uh, something like that. Yeah, right in the, the yeah, 20s yeah, or so. a yeah, worldwide 25. total of thirty two point five million. So good on good good on Candyman. It's cool in a week. Good job. Uh, well, I mean, especially considering right now when I think far fewer people are going to the theater. Yeah. Um, this was my first theater experience. Oh, crazy. Since the, since the pandemic started. How was that? Um, It was fine. I mean, we went in the early evening, so like a 545 showing. And I mean, typically I went to the Americana in Glendale. I've never really been there and had it be busy. Um, so I, I assumed it would be fairly empty and it was, you know, like I said, maybe 10 people were in there. Um, it was fine. Well, just as, as like, was it like, just like you were at a movie yesterday or was there anything as far as like, whoa, seeing something on a big screen and loud again? Hmm. Um, a little bit. Yeah. A little bit of that. Like, oh, this is nice to be back kind of feeling like there was some intense surround sound happening and i was like oh damn yeah that's good i missed that (laughs) cool so yeah i wore my glasses too which is always good like i often forget to wear my glasses (laughs) and then like regret it because i'm like i am blind now apparently um so that was nice (laughs) cool you could see the movie you were going to see see. (laughs) uh well always important we're talking about its budget gross let's just say that all had to do with some of the marketing behind it I didn't even know Snapchat was still a thing, but apparently, uh, how do they describe it here? There was a stunt activation is made. That's a social media Snapchat term of like, do this thing where they made a Snapchat yeah. filter that would dare the users to tweet Candyman five times, uh, which would then, you know, result in it trending, which it did. But yeah, the trailer did really well, all that stuff. So anticipation was indeed high for this film. They're hungry for I also it. heard that um, I didn't do this or see it, but I heard that then their website, you get a blank page. And if you said Candyman five times, it would open a hidden page. That's really cool. Did you see that anywhere? I mean, I'm on the official website right now. It doesn't still function that way, but um, I feel like, oh, yeah, man. I heard that. That's yeah, cool. I heard that that existed and, and 
I did not follow up to see what that was all about. But that's pretty, pretty ballsy, to be honest, because like you are then for all intents and purposes looking at a mirror when you do that. Yeah. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> cool. What is your take on uh, on actually saying it in the mirror? What do you mean my take on it? Like, would you do that and feel comfortable doing it and, and not think anything of it? Um, I don't actually think something would happen, but I don't feel the urge to do it. <laughs> and That's and, exactly where I land with and, it. And if someone dared me to, I would that would make me want to do it less. Yeah, me too. I kind of, for me, it's like, in no way do I think there's anything to it. But all things being equal, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to tempt fate. How's that sound? <laughs> I come down on the, I love movies so much and kind of maybe I do prescribe deep down onto kind of the, in the, the unified field theory, like everything is real in right, some right. regard, like on some base level of existence, if you're able to zoom out that far, zoom in that far, like we are Tim and Ryan are as real as characters as like characters in this movie, like on some base level of existence. And so I think like in my chest, I feel like a respect for uh, for people and situations in movies and TV shows. So it just feels like gross. I don't know. It just feels weird to me to be like, nah, it's fake. Like, I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like movies are too special for me. And I think that's this, that, I, I don't know, to just to kind of have fun in dismissing that they are just movies. Like, I feel like that's what that sort of urge comes from to like, I don't know, to kind of just poo poo, -poo something. Oh, it's not real. It's like, yeah, but it's not, but it is like in other ways. Yeah. So I just, um, too much of a, yeah, films are too special for me to kind of, I don't know. And, and maybe I, I tie what you're saying. Do I have that? That's why I don't have an urge. That urge to do that, to like set up a Candyman ritual. And get, it sounds fun in the spirit of the movie in the way as a film fan, but at the same time, I just, yeah, it feels like you're just kind of saying, eh, just a movie is like the the sort of instinct that I attach to people who would do that. Right, right. Um, I also think it's it's noteworthy to talk about Nia DaCosta and just like, I mean, this movie is incredible and it is effectively her first major feature film. Like she has one other feature uh, i really want to see it uh little woods with tessa thompson yeah exactly and that little woods so i've you know i've come to understand something if you, if you get into the sundance screenwriters and directors lab that's a really good thing for your career <laughs> it means you'll direct a marvel movie <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> i mean you know like quentin tarantino got into it and that like really helped kickstart his career and Obviously, a large number of of now successful directors and writers have gone through that. Yeah, I know um, she's the first black woman to have a number one grossing film, and she's thirty. She's thirty. That is that's amazing. Um, yeah. So Little Woods was came out of that um, 
um, was what was accepted to the Sundance Screenwriter Lab, Director's Lab. Um, and she made a short film version of it, uh, low budget. And then that led to a feature version, which we should watch because it's, it, you know, she's clearly exceptionally talented. And because um, I know so, you can answer this, Tim, what do we have to look forward to with what what is the Marvel film she's doing? Why should we be excited about it? Why is she a good choice for it? Um. Okay, so the sequel to Captain Marvel, which had Brie Larson in it, um, is going to be called The Marvels, and it will involve um, multiple, well, likely, I don't think there's actual like press release on this, but it will involve a number of characters that sort of fall under the Marvel banner. Miss Marvel is one. Ms. Marvel is one. Uh, Kamala Khan is another. Like, so um, that movie will involve those entities most likely. And it'll be out. I think they're filming or about to start filming. Uh, release date is 2022, November. Um, but yeah, she will be the youngest director. Okay, but yeah, what what is a, what are these what are the marvels? Why is she good for what is oh my, what could, what can oh we expect? God. I mean that's a long conversation. Okay, so Captain Marvel, if anybody saw Captain Marvel, Captain Marvel is the product of an alien being, a Kree being coming to Earth and getting in an accident with Carol Danvers who um becomes imbued, her DNA gets changed and she has cosmic powers so to speak so that's captain marvel they slightly changed the origin in the movie but it's essentially that's the gist of it um and through the comic um you know history that same power has uh affected a handful of other characters in various ways whether it was through contact with captain marvel himself or herself whichever version um Kamala Khan was the first. <laughs> okay, sorry to cut you off. I got it. So these, the, the, there's a power that Brie Larson got, and these are all the people who got that same power. Why are you yeah, excited? Essentially, for... it's sort of a cosmic power. It it shows up in various forms. Like your powers are slightly different now, aside, based on who you are. Aside from Nia DaCosta just being a overall director to watch, and she's good, and we should be excited. Why are you excited about her doing this film? Well, um, for starters, it's a woman director um, doing largely women-centric um, heroes. I think that's important. Um, she's young, so I think it's it's good to have somebody of, of that generation. She would be, what, a millennial? or Yeah, I think she'd be considered a millennial. Um, or like l late millennial, earlier, early Gen Z, taking on... Um, characters that actually span a couple generations as well. So like Kamala Khan is a teenager and, you know, she gets these powers and, and how is that going to affect her as a teenager? Um, so it's smart to have somebody in the middle of those generations to be helming this so that you can kind of bridge the gap in perception of what that experience might be like. So I think it'll be fun. I also think it's really important. Uh, you know, I, I say this as as a director who works as a you know directing team. I myself and my directing partner Shane, like we're a duo that 
make films. Um, but I think that there are certain properties that benefit more from singular vision. And I think the hero Marvel stuff has seemed to be the case. It, it, the first Captain Marvel was was a duo director team that I just think it, I think there were too many cooks in the kitchen with that movie and it didn't actually end up being as good as it could have been. So I'm excited to see like a singular vision person come in and like somebody who's up and coming who can kind of be like, no, this is what we're doing. So hopefully that it works out and is a good movie. God, I hope they let her make her movie. You know, I'm just. Yeah, it's hard to know. We've seen, you know, historically there have been three or four directors who have bowed out of Marvel films because of feeling like they couldn't get their vision made. So. Hard to know. I'm hoping uh, Sam Raimi gets to make a Sam Raimi movie for Doctor Strange 2. That's going to be a weird one because he came in, you know, not late in the game, but like midway through kind of. So we'll see how that affects it. Interesting. I mean, Edgar Wright bowed out of Ant-Man. Yeah. And that, you know, you could you could kind of see the like remnants of Edgar Wright in that movie. Yeah. Um. Hard to know. Cool. Well, all right. I think that's it then for our things of note meaning we can wind down from Candyman and we like to wind down with some recommendations. We've gotten anything for each other, for you, stuff we've been watching, consuming, enjoying. You got anything, Tim? Oh, man. I mean, is it, a, is it inappropriate to say you should go watch the first Candyman? Like, that, I, like, I think that... No, it's a different, as long as it's I, different from what we're yeah. talking about. <laughs> it's, it's okay. I, I really think you should go do that. I think, you know, watching the first Candyman kind of, man, it's an important horror film in the, in the you know, pantheon of, of horror. Like, it's doing a different thing. And I think that, you know, the proof is in the pudding. Like, obviously what it was doing had, had, uh, an effect and led us to this current version. So yeah, go watch that. That's my recommendation. <laughs> go watch Candyman 1992. Yeah. Cool. Uh, I'll recommend dead something. I, I checked to see. It feels like it's one I might've recommended before, but it's just one of my, like, I don't know. The last five years is kind of my, like one of my new go-to just new favorites, I guess. Something I'll just come back to just when uh need to be put in a certain mood or just feel good or whatever. And that is Ed Wood, the Tim Burton film from <laughs> 1994, nice. where it just seems like it's on the level too, or we're like, I'll mention it to people and they'll be like, oh no, I haven't heard of it. Or like, oh yeah, I think I maybe saw it or kind of, you know, like that kind of thing. Really? But I mean, I'm... It, you know, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Beetlejuice are like my favorite movies, but if I have to like look at it more objectively, I could argue how Ed Wood is Tim Burton's masterpiece. And if you're at all a fan of movies about making movies, like don't overlook this one. This one's just so inspiring, yeah. especially if you're a filmmaker, just to get in touch with all that you love about making movies. The just the 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 era that it takes place in and just the the comedy and tone is just so unique and particular and just that like oddball enough. Uh, the cast <laughs> is great. I just, if it's been a while or if you've never seen it, please check out Edward. It's incredible. 
Yeah, and I think of subsequently you should definitely watch Plan 9 from Outer Space. Yeah, it's the the natural double screening, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> cool. Cool, dude. Well, for next week, is it my turn to say when <laughs> when you pull from the hat? Sure. All right. Well, I I saw that I think I think I'm right. Um, I don't know. All right. And might as well be. When? Oh, this is a long one. Here we go. I got to unfold it. Can you yes. see that? Speaking of older films from the air, Frankenstein meets the Wolfman from 1943. <laughs> cool. We were getting some requests for more, you know, films of this sort in this era, especially the, yep. you know, the universal ones and the spinoff ones. So yeah, this is one, God, I don't know if I've seen it since I was a kid. So I don't think I've ever seen it. Great. Be fun. And we're, it'll be good. You know, it's, we're in September now. So, um, you know, rather than the 31 days of October, which has the, the 60 days of Halloween here at Dismembering Horror. Uh, yeah, we already bought a bunch of Halloween stuff. We're gearing up. Oh, great. Awesome. So this feels in line for just getting in that, that mood already. This should be fun. Totally. All right. Well, in the meantime, you can find us wherever you found us. We got an Instagram. I encourage you check out where we where we can tease you what's coming up, post stills, all that fun stuff. If you've made it this far, our big ask is you do tell a friend. But either way, no matter what, uh, we really appreciate you being here. So in closing, Candyman, 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 Candyman. Don't do it. I'm looking at Tim to decide if he's going to say it or not. I will not. I refuse. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Yes, and we will see you next time. Good. Goodbye. Goodbye.